turning the tide. It's a capital gains tax by stealth. And another week, another scandal for the speaker. Is Trevor Mallard a bully? Kia ora and welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up where we discuss all of the political stories we've been covering here at Parliament for One News. I'm Mikey Sherman. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. And I'm Benedict Collins. And as usual, we like to kick off our podcast doing the highs and the lows of the week, the peaks and the pits. Jessica Much Mackay, take it away. All right, so my pit this week that I'll start off with was the government's announcement on Monday that there was a lot of hype and build-up for that ended up being a date for the date you'll find out the bubble. And it just felt like quite a letdown and um, slightly flat. So I think um, Cabinet were set to give us more of a hint of the date. I think they decided against it inside Cabinet and at four o'clock when the announcement came out, they said, right, so on April 6th, will announce when the date will be. So it was just a, a bit of a wah wah. Having, having hyped it up last week, telling mm-hmm. people it was coming, we'll have more to say on this on Monday, mm. you know, and, and it was interesting because I was talking to someone earlier this week and they said they had friends in Australia who were so excited. They were like huddled around watching the live stream of the Prime Minister's post-cabinet press conference waiting to see that date and were just like devastated. When oh, but don't worry, they got <laughs> the date for the date. So yeah, no, yeah, they'll be good. Yeah. I, they I announced don't... the date of the announcement where they'll announce the... Yeah, the date, the date, the, the date that is coming. I, I Maybe to explain if it all goes across well. as well. Like <laughs> yeah. So I've got the date for the date that it'll be announced. Sorry about that, guys. Yes. I, I kind of liken it to blowing up a balloon where the government puts a lot of hot air into it and like builds up the expectation, and then they came out on Monday and then they just let it loose and it was. That's, that's the bubble. That was the bubble. That's a that was beautiful it. podcast yeah. audio there. Yeah. You're, you're welcome, everyone. Uh, Benedict, what was your peak of the week? Well, I think this week we have seen some absolute next-level political bullshit. It has been <laughs> fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So we've we've had the um, government come out and with it with its housing announcement and. The, the talk about the bright line test and seeing, you know, um, the Prime Minister claiming that the, the Labour Party was silent on the issue of the bright line test during the election campaign when Grant Robertson specifically ruled out, uh, you know, uh, extending the extending the level. And she, he's standing right next to her as she says they were silent. Then he comes out and says, oh, yes, in that interview where I specifically ruled out raising the bright line test, I was a little too definitive. That's um, correct, Minister, because your answer to the question of whether you'd adjust the bright line test was no. Yeah. N-O. Yeah. Reasonably definitive. And, and then I love it too because you've got the National Party coming out and being like, this is a capital gains tax they're bringing in. You know, Jacinda Ardern lied um, lied to the public when she said she'd never bring in a capital gains tax. And then Jacinda Ardern gets up and, and runs the quotes of um, you know John Key and Simon Bridges saying that the Brightline test is absolutely not a capital gains tax. They're all over the show doing what um, politicians do do best. It was fun um, television putting that together, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, I mean, it was just fantastic. I've got another one that I'll um, talk about as my second peak. All right, two peaks. Okay, uh, well, my peak of the week um, is that I got to sit down with Sir Wood Gardner, um, and who's obviously taken over from uh, Gronya Moss at Oranga Tamariki as the chief executive. He's acting, he's in the role for six months, um, and so, you know, got to sit, sit down with him this week and just chat about all of the big, big challenges that they are facing and that he is having to clean up at Oranga Tamariki. Hugely interesting stuff. He basically says that, look, one of the big problems there is 
there's a lack of cultural competency within the organisation and within staff at Oranga Tamariki. And that's important because 60% of the children in state care are Māori. So basically what he wants to do is roll out cultural competency courses across the country. He's even saying that you know he might want to see those um, have NZQA standards behind them. Um, and, you know, I, I, I could see from one, what well, you know, some people might say, look, a te reo Māori and tikanga Māori course, what's that going to do? But I think it will make a big difference because, you know, you have to sort of be able to walk in the shoes of these children um, in order to, to sort of help them and help their whānau and to sort of have that empathy and that sort of understanding of where they're coming from in their in their houses um, and in their community. So I think that's a good thing. I think that um, in terms of the head being Māori, right, the next person who takes over, we've obviously heard Dame Nader Glavish um, and all of those women who called for changes to be made, they want the next head of Oranga Tamariki to be Māori. He said that definitely Māori should be in positions of influence, but maybe not necessarily he is as rigid on the head being Māori. I said to him, do you think that you know having a non-Māori in there would be acceptable um, to the people? And he said no. So It'll be interesting to see where they go with that in the end and, and what sort of feedback or, or, you know, backlash that might create. Where they land. Yeah. Mm. Really interesting stuff. I, um, I'm not sure whether I'm stealing someone else's hair, but I'll go for it anyway. Um, an interesting point, um, we've had the next round of uh, maiden speeches. So even though we're six months on from an election now because of COVID and because of the delays, uh, they're still going through some of those maiden speeches and we had some of the national MPs last night. So they've waited a long time to have their first official speech in Parliament. Lots of them would, would have already done it by now. Usually the maiden speeches are, have... I got it out of the way in December after they come back. These have dragged on for a long time. so But it's a nice starting point for them. And it, I think for us as well, we get to know them a little bit through those speeches as well. We get a bit of a flavour. Um, they lay out their priorities. And if they go on to become leaders or ministers, it is always really interesting to go back and listen to their maiden speeches. Yeah, like a bit of a flavour of their background, eh? what Absolutely. they've done before they... Know, where they grew up. And there have been some really good ones already, mm. um, some really powerful speeches. So, yeah, it was good to get a few more of those away last night. Yeah, and it, I also find them interesting because it shows you know, what sort of diverse backgrounds MPs have before they come into Parliament Yeah, as well. the House of Representatives, mm. yeah. Yeah, so another another highlight this week in terms of political por- porkies, um, and that was on caucus run um, this week with the Labour Party. So basically all the Labour MPs have to walk past the, the journalists and stop and ask them. You know, a journalist had stopped um, Stuart Nash to ask him about comments, Stuart Nash, the tourism minister, to ask him about comments that his colleague Damien O'Connor had made the week before at Central Park Field Day's big um, farming event up in um, Manawatu where Damien O'Connor had said that the pandemic had taught the tourism sector not to be so cocky, um, which didn't go down very well, obviously, with the um, tourism sector that's been smashed by this pandemic. So we, um, a journalist had stopped Stuart Nash and we jumped in on that and um, he'd said, oh, look, yeah, those are you know, dumb comments. Basically, I would never have made them. And um, Damien O'Connor has actually apologised to me for those comments. Um, Damien O'Connor walked along a few minutes later and I, I stopped him. I said, oh, so you've apologised for those comments? And he flat out... Um, denied it and I've got a little um, uh, I've spliced together a bit of these interactions so uh, you can take a look at them now Uh, Certainly how I would put it the tourism sector is by and large made up of uh, small businesses where the owners and operators and employees work incredibly hard uh, delivering on a product to make all New Zealanders proud so 
I do believe, yes. Like I said, it's not what I would have said. Yes, I have. Uh, he's apologised to me. No, I haven't apologised. Uh, maybe it's not the perfect word, but I think the sentiment was really important. So when Stuart Nash says you personally apologise to him, is he, is he um, not telling the truth? No, no, he did. I actually apologised. I said, sorry, I didn't want to put more pressure on you because I know he's been doing good work. And when you said you hadn't apologised, what you meant is that you had apologised. So I'd apologise to Stu Nash for putting more pressure on him. Yeah, so uh, a, a quick turnaround there from a, um, a minister from not apologising to, yes, I have apologised, and um, it, as I put to him there, so, you know, when you said you hadn't apologised, what you actually meant is you had. So, um, yeah, so, some good fun there with some um, Labour MPs. They might want to get their story straight uh, before they walk past caucus run next Yeah, the time. answer changes when they know you know the answer <laughs> to the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, just good fun. Yeah. All right, any more for any more? No. I'm all out. Okay, yep. well, the first big topic we'll talk about today is obviously the big, big announcement by the government, and that was, of course, its housing package. Jess, do you want to give us a quick little synopsis? Yeah, so we've been waiting for this for a really long time, and this was the government's chance to make some real changes on housing. I'll just go through them really briefly. We had the Bright Line test, which obviously National brought in at two years. It was then extended out by Labour to five and has now become ten. Uh, there's questions about whether that's a capital gains tax by stealth, um, but it basically means you've got to um, have an investment property for ten years before um, you don't have to pay uh you don't have to pay capital, capital gains. gains. Yeah, capital gains on the money that you make. So there's that bright line test. There were also the tweaks that they made to uh, the first home grant. So that's the $5,000 you get. They lifted the salary cap a bit and lifted the cap for the amount you can spend on a house. Pretty marginal stuff and still a really low cap. So not a huge amount of help. But one of the things that caused probably the biggest stir was changing um, some tax rules uh, for investors at the moment, um, investors can write off the uh, interest against the the rent that they um, collect, and it means that they don't have to pay as much. They're now the government now anything um, that's purchased after the twenty seventh of March will be phased in over the next four years, and that'll have a real impact. I was talking to someone today who's a mum and dad investor, um, saying that they, um, you know that will have an impact on them having to pay the bit. Now they, and, and is considering whether it's worth selling up or um, whether it's worth hanging on to that investment property. And I think that that's just an example of what the government wants to happen. If if that person, you know, even if they're considering selling that, um, others will be selling and, and feeling the same. And it just releases more houses into the market, perhaps for first-time buyers. But... On the flip side, it means that that house isn't available to be rented out either. So it's just, it's really interesting. The investors came out pretty strongly um, saying, woe is me. Um, you know, I, I think for the mum and dad investors, it, it's perhaps a slightly different category than the uh, people who own multiple houses um, but, yeah, a really interesting political, big political move. An interesting number that the government used in its um, press conference just on um, more speculators as opposed to the mum and dad investors is that last year um, 15,000 people who bought a home already owned five or more. And I think that 
that number would would probably um, get a few sort of uh, raised eyebrows, a few backs up from those people who can't even get into the housing market. And also investors now make up the largest chunk of the housing market in New Zealand. So, you know, when we interviewed people out on the streets, we, you know, bumped into young people and people who were trying to buy their first home and there was an agreement that, you know, they weren't too too sympathetic, if you if you will, um, will uh, like for um, investors. Um, but uh, it is true that they were uh, blindsided by that um, interest deductibility um, switch up there. I mean, we in- interviewed the Investors Federation and they said, you know, that's going to hit them hard. I think they gave the example of, you know, if you had a $600,000 home, it would mean that you'd have to find $6,000 extra a year that you would now no longer be able to claim back. So it will have a big impact on, on those investors. And it's interesting, right, because investors run this argument, wow, this is going to be bad news for renters because we're just going to have to put the rent up. And I love the grab from um, Infometrics, um, Brad also in your track saying, hey, well, that was always going to happen anyway, right? Regardless of what the government did, you know, landlords are going to keep putting up the rent, um, which I thought thought was good. But yeah, this really rebalances things, right? It takes away a big advantage that property investors have over, you know, people who intend to live in their own home, you know, first home buyers and, and others, um, that they can't, you know, the tax system isn't designed, you know, specifically to benefit that kind of behaviour. And that's, you know, that's the system we've had in New Zealand, which is why so many people, you know, like, like this 15,000 end up buying four, five or more houses, right? Because the whole tax system's just aimed at encouraging it. And I know that National has criticised Labour um, around the Brightline test extension saying it basically is a capital gains tax. Um, I, I do think, though, that, you know, there are very little tools in the toolbox for the government in order to sort of try and rectify this, you know, out of whack housing market. It's already ruled out a specific capital gains tax. So there was no way that they could go beyond look, you know, that they couldn't look at the bright line test and extend it out. So you can call it what you like. It was necessary um, for, for rebalancing. But I think there was political jiggery pokery here because Jacinda Ardern had come out and said, I will resign rather than implement a capital gains tax. To me, that's, that's, far, you know, that's as far as a Prime Minister can go. She couldn't bring it in under that name. I think, there are, I think you're right that there are some situations where you're like, right, I said that, but you know, actually times have changed and I'm going to have to wear the political fallout of that and I'm changing my mind. I think they couldn't call it a, a capital gains tax because of how far she'd gone with Which that. So they had to do ee bright line test, we'll just extend it out, you know, they've had to... Which is why it's you know, such a glorious present from the um, from John Key and the former national government to have brought it in the first place, <laughs> yeah. right? And to have argued black and blue that it wasn't a capital gains tax, you know, the weasel words around the bright line but test the Prime Minister, just totally work in their favour now that they extend it, right? Yeah, and really interesting to hear the Prime Minister's language because when she was doing that announcement, we were sitting in the theatre and maybe three or four times she said, nationals bright line test as yeah. a little rem- reminder Just of to things. drive it home. Home, that yeah. they're just extending this this great idea that it would the have um, been National a, Party introduced. Just yeah. going back to Benedict's um, peak there around uh, Grant Robertson's um, ruling out um, extending the bright line test, it would have been a little bit of a bummer for him, really, you have to say, um, that on, you know, as the finance minister, someone who's worked on this big 
big package. <laughs> he knew that that backtrack was coming for him. You could see his tail between his legs while he was standing up at the podium there giving the press conference. He didn't get to take as much centre stage as he would have liked because, of course, it all began in that press conference with, hey, Grant, you said you weren't going to do that. So, you know, it took probably a little bit of the wind out of his own personal sales for the finance minister. Mm. Yeah, also like the 3.8, was it, billion dollars mm-hmm. um, that also came in here to help get basic more houses getting built, help mm. um, get the infrastructure in place here. Yeah. yeah, I think it's quite interesting. So that idea, there's that pot of money sitting there and we, 3.8 billion, and I remember sitting in the press conference being like, oh, well, it's not really that much money, that won't go very far. And the Prime Minister's press set came in to have a chat um, afterwards and said, yeah, but you've got to remember $3.8 billion is still quite a lot of money. It's just that we're in co- post-COVID and we're talking about that... Um, Billions upon billions upon billions 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 of dollars. Big nowadays. Yeah, and I just think, and I was like, yeah, that's actually really true. A $3.8 billion announcement two years ago would have been the centrepiece of a budget announcement. It would Mm. have been huge. And now it's just like, because we used to you know? just talk about hundreds of millions. Yeah. But yeah. now it's all in the billions. The other the other thing that I thought, um, um, you know, the, obviously the, the the weakest part, in my opinion, of, of that housing announcement was the, the small incremental lift in the income uh, cap and the housing price cap um, for the, for the you know, home grants and home loans. It didn't move that much, you know, and I think that would have disappointed a lot of those first home buyers is that the government didn't sort of lift those higher because what was the cap now what is the cap now for Wellington it's around five six six fifty for a house um, and the income cap for a single person is has gone from 85 to 95 and for a couple has gone from 120 to 150. And, um, and I guess the point is when you live in Wellington and, and, and it goes you know to show across the country it's just not as realistic to get a house in Wellington for 650 unless you go to those outer outer mm. you know areas and I think so I think that would have been a bit disappointing for a lot of people that the government didn't take it higher and I also don't buy Grant Robertson's um, uh, re- rationale behind not lifting it higher he's like well look we don't want to lift it so high whereas people can no longer afford to service their mortgage but I I don't necessarily agree with that because at the end of the day, when people go to apply for a mortgage with the bank, the bank assesses whether or not you are able to service the mortgage that they give you, you know. So it's not like the bank's going out there handing out cash willy-nilly, like the checks and balances are still there. So that, that rationale from him... I don't know. I don't really buy that one. And when the deposits are so huge, five grand's a, a help, but it's not. It's not going to significantly shift whether someone can buy a house or not. Fifty grand would be more like it these days, you yeah. know. And I think someone to point out in the presser um, regarding the new limits in Wellington that you know um, there'd been a story I think that day about a, what they said was a glorified shipping container yeah. done up as a house going for 750000 yeah. in Miramar you know so and it's yeah, Miramar which is a suburb not in central Wellington for those listening that aren't here in Wellington you know it's not like it was 
on the terrace or somewhere really close. Mm. So now, talking about not being here in Wellington, and if in fact you wanted to go overseas, this is my segue. That was great. Good work. <laughs> then you might need line up for an early vaccination, and that's what we've got. Uh, this You're got using this your week. reporter voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week we got the details around um, the criteria for early vaccinations if you want to dry, uh, travel overseas. Uh, basically, two categories. One is on compassionate grounds. The other is uh, for travel for national significance. So on compassionate grounds, um, people who are wanting to go and visit a, uh, an immediate family member who is dying can apply um, for early vaccination. And then on the other side, um, it's the likes of your national sporting teams like the Black Caps, Olympics teams, um, and even diplomats, those needing to travel overseas for national significant reasons, nationally significant reasons, can get an early vaccine. What did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think, as the minister said, he's got to draw a line somewhere. I feel like um, one of the things that was contentious that you'd talked about from the press conference was the you can the government will give you priority vaccination for going overseas to visit a dying loved one, um, but won't to attend a funeral. So it does get to the situation where it's up to the government to decide whether how you grieve and how you can see loved ones. And it is just an unusual situation because it's just giving all of this power to, you know, all of this power to the government to decide what we do with our lives. So I guess I can see the justification for why the minister decided that it wouldn't be warranted to go for a funeral. But it does seem unusual then to allow people to go and visit dying loved ones. And it's just a subjective choice. That's the mm. criteria that they've decided on, and I'm sure they've tested it out and things like that. But it did seem like an unusual anomaly to make. Um, you know, for some people, attending a funeral is really important and part of the grieving process, and the government's decided that that's, that, that doesn't meet the threshold for them. You do have to wonder also um, whether the government will face a fight over that decision when you remember that, you know, this time last year when we went into lockdown and there were rules around not being able to go to funerals, the government in the end had to backtrack from that after so much public pressure. Mm. And you do have to wonder whether we may see that happen in terms of early vaccinations because it's one thing to know that say your family member has cancer and you, and you have that pre-warning and you're able to arrange yourself to get over there but what if they die in a car crash mm. and it's sudden and it's unexpected and then you're saying you can't go over there to grieve that loved one like, or to sort know? out so affairs or to, to sort, sort out yeah you know, all of that um, to travel back with them and bring them back so yeah. it is it, it could throw up some complications for the government I wonder if there will be exemptions for people who die suddenly in that situation like let's say you've got if you're um, you know, if it's a child or someone that you need to go over and repatriate the body and being there is important I, I just wonder if there could be some kind of special exemptions in some particular circumstances. And you'd have to think there would be some flexibility with things, but, mm. you know, just um, an awful situation for people to be in at the moment, eh? Yeah, but I don't think it'll be too much longer that these kind of you know, restrictions or these rules are even going to have to be around, right? I think mm. within 
Ho- hopefully six, seven months, mm. you know, nearly everyone will be. Which is fine well. if you're not That's right. desperate, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. to get over there and to do things. It's mm. hard. I also do watch that, watch, watch the, um, the, the vaccination rates closely because, you know, where we're expecting is what the tier four, because that mm. um, uh, quiz came out this week, right? That sort of tells you when you might expect to get vaccinated. Yeah. We're sort of around August, is that? No, we're like, all uh, July. It's, July. It's just yeah. pretty... Um, it doesn't really tell from you anything July. More than what the it seems quite hopeful to me, especially when we saw all of the. I think um, it says from July onwards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, just year. with the issues that we saw with the flu vaccine last year, and just trying to get everyone, you know, mm. um, uh, done with that, it, you know, faced a lot of challenges. And I wonder if it if it will be the same for for the COVID nineteen vaccine. But we'll just have to keep an eye on and see how it goes. We'll have to see who the first member of the press gallery is to get a vaccination, um, and whether. If we're all left to December thirty first, twenty twenty one, or how it works. Now, also this week, Benedict, um, uh, you've been uh, chasing the Speaker Trevor Mallard around the halls of power. Yeah, as an, well. A, another week, another um, Trevor Mallard scandal. Um, so, what what happened this week was uh, the National Party had gone to the High Court and basically, regarding that defamation action that a member of Parliament who was falsely accused of having been a rapist by Trevor Mallard. Um, someone who worked at Parliament someone rather who than a Parliament. member of Parliament. Yeah. yeah, someone who had worked at Parliament. They'd taken defamation claim. The National Party obtained the state, um, statements of intent and it basically what it showed was that on the 22nd of May 2019, in the morning, that's when Trevor Mallard made the false claim on, on RNZ and, and on our breakfast show. Um, the statement of claim showed pretty much that um, the Parliament's chief parliamentary service chief executive immediately told Trevor Mallard that that was false, that his claim was false. And yet he came out at 3.30 that afternoon did another press conference um, basically saying that he stood by the claims that a rapist had been working at Parliament and that they were, you know, they were gone and Parliament was a much safer place for women in that afternoon press conference. Um, so the yeah, pretty extraordinary um, general debate speech yesterday by Chris Bishop um, where he just laid it all out um, and, and said, you know, he just thought it was such disturbing behaviour from the Speaker, not only that he misled New Zealanders in that afternoon press conference, but then kept trying to destroy the guy in a court case for 18 months, knowing that his um, you know, rape allegation had been false. And the Speaker let him get through that speech yeah. in Parliament and, and, and then responded. Yeah, yeah, and said, well, I, I let that speech go, even though it was totally out of line. But he said um, he's going to have more to say in an upcoming select committee where the truth will be told, which is interesting, right? Because Trevor Mallard in December apologised unreservedly for what he'd done to this guy. right? And um, we, we spoke to the Prime Minister yesterday's you know, said, what do you make of it? And she said, oh, well, I, th- I think he's apologised already. I think she kind of felt this that this was going over old ground, even though we had new information. Um, but, yeah, continues to back him. Yeah, it, so I think it really interesting, and it will be interesting to see what he's said. He has signed a non-disclosure agreement um, as part of that, so his argument is that he can't talk about it unless... He, the, the clause that he got in that, from my understanding or from my memory, is that if it's for parliamentary business, if he has to answer questions um, with his hat as Speaker on um, to fulfil his obligations as an MP, then he can do that, and that would fit within that criteria. Yeah. So I always wonder who comes up with these non-disclosure agreements, though, Who's, you know, which which mm. party was really behind it? Because it's incredibly convenient for a member of parliament um, to sign up to one of these agreements, which forbid them from talking to the media. Mm. I think mm. they should do that when they first come in. Some of them would quite like that. I think we'll just have a non-disclosure yeah. ag- agreement with myself. Um, <laughs> and on and on that note, 
We shall leave it there. Um, so this was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up where we discuss all of the political happenings here at Parliament within the team uh, here at One News. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. It's available most weeks on One News Online. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app.